I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of television and movies, then and now. The Rural Purge. Two words that have become famous in TV history, but which literally changed the television landscape in the early 1970s. At the time, Fred Silverman, who had taken over programming for CBS, decided that what he wanted was a younger audience. What he didn't want was for the network to be defined by its current lineup of Southern shows. He was looking for something edgier, which meant that sitcoms and variety shows that were still entertaining millions of viewers every week, some for decades, were canceled. Out with the Purge were shows like Mayberry RFD, Green Acres, Hee Haw, The Beverly Hillbillies, The Red Skelton Show, and The Jackie Gleason Show. Admittedly, on some levels, it was a decision that made sense. After all, it paved the way for the likes of All in the Family, MASH, and The Mary Tyler Moore Show. But in the other, as uncovered by author Sarah Eskridge, some of that decision resulted from Silverman's personal bias. Sarah has written the book Rube Tube, CBS and Rural Comedy in the 60s, and today she's joining us for our classic TV podcast. What made you write the book? You know, what was the fascination that made you say, hey, this is a book? Well, I've always been really fascinated as a Southerner um, in the concept of Southern stereotypes and the ideas that people have about Southerners, um, whether they've actually met Southern people or been to the South. Um, there seem to be certain stereotypes that proliferate throughout the country about who we are and, and what we do and how we behave. And so I was really interested in the origins of where those ideas come from. And of course, they don't start with rural comedy, but there's certainly vestiges of a lot of those stereotypes that exist within those shows. And so I was really interested in exploring that to see, you know, what stereotypes did they uphold? Which things did they sort of, you know, what ideas did they kind of create that were new that hadn't existed before? And so it all kind of came out of that germ of an idea. Now, were you, did you, I, I mean, I have no idea your age. Did you watch these shows when they originally aired? Did you discover them later? I mean, how did it work for you? Well, I um, was actually born quite a bit after these shows were on the air and I did not grow up with them. In fact, the first time that I watched them was when I started doing this research. Um, so these are things that I had heard references to my entire life. I certainly knew that they existed, but they were not um, something that my, my parents ever watched, and it's not something that we ever had growing up. Um, so I just, um, based on things that I had read in grad school, I just found that there were those constant references to them, and so I just wanted to dig into that a little bit more. So this was actually the first time that I watched them. That's interesting because, I mean, I grew up with them. I mean, I, you know, I, I was born in 1960. So, you know, I grew up watching a lot of these shows and I'm not from the South. So I imagine I have a different perspective. But when you watch things like, I don't know, Petticoat Junction, Green Acres, uh, I don't know if Beverly Hillbillies was in that mix or not at that point. But mm -hmm. but when you watch those shows now, is it with a reaction of horror on your part, amusement on your park, I mean, part? I mean, what is sort of your response to seeing those shows for the first time? Well, honestly, I was really surprised um, because I expected to sort of be disgusted by them in a certain way and to think that they were really stereotypical, but I found that I had a mixed reaction. I found that there definitely was that element there, particularly in a character like, um, like Gomer Pyle, in characters like the the Darling family, which were on the the Andy Griffith show, um, so, you know some of the characters, not really in Petticoat Junction, but Green Acres uh, certainly had some of those stereotypical elements. Um, and uh, what also what I found was that they were 
incredibly enjoyable in their own right. I And I think this is something that um, the creators of the programs, especially the Andy Griffith show, I felt that they really tried to focus on creating the environment and they really tried to focus on character building. And in a lot of ways, they were somewhat subversive because the way that they're creating the characters is that they have their own wisdom. They have, you know, in some ways, they're the smart ones. And uh, you especially see that in the Beverly Hillbillies, where you often have the Clampets interacting with these people who are so materialistic and are so focused on things. And with the Clampets, they legitimately have no idea what the use is for some of these things that we sort of take for granted as being part of modern life. They don't understand why you would have a swimming pool. Like that's a habitat for animals. That's not something for people to swim in. Like you can swim anywhere. You don't need a stove because you can make a fire. You, they don't understand why the neighbors wouldn't want roadkill left on their steps because in their minds, they're using what the environment has given them and the neighbors don't see any use for that. And so these are people who are living by an old fashioned set of values that don't really make sense in the modern world. And yet they're, they seem to be the ones, you know, to them, the way that everyone else is living is crazy, not them. Um, and so I, I just find that juxtaposition really fascinating. And so I found them actually really entertaining and interesting and layered in a way that I hadn't expected. And it's funny because, you know, I look at something like Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah, and, I, and you do get the – and pardon the expression that, you know, the country bumpkins, right, in the in the Clampets. And I, I mean the stereotypical mm-hmm. in one way. Uh, mm-hmm. But you're right. They're, they are they are adhering to a certain lifestyle. It just happens to be different from the modern one, from the, from the materialistic one. So it's an interesting contrast. And not only that, but they are really – um, they, they're not swayed. Um, you know, in a way, they had moved to Beverly Hills because they're trying to, you know, that, that Jed Clampett is trying to make a better life for his children. But at the same time, they're remaining very true to who they are, and they're not swayed by this modern environment. They'll interact with it. They'll experiment with it. But at the whole, they remain themselves. And so there's something about that unwillingness to waver and that inward-directed sense of self um, that I actually think is really impressive. Yeah. You know, and you brought up Gomer Pyle before, and Gomer, of course, is that sort of that, or shall I am, you know, and all that stuff, and it's gone all mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Yeah. But, but what's interesting is that that character was born on, as you said, the Andrew Griffith show. So mm-hmm. it's like, so yeah, he may be that sort of almost a caricature in some ways, but there's a certain base of reality from which he sprang. Yeah, and you know, and based on what. Uh, Andy said about what, you know, why he found this guy and why he put them on. I mean, it really does seem to be that he found Jim neighbors in a nightclub and he was doing an act that was very similar and called back a lot to what Andy himself had done before he became famous. And I think that I, I don't know that it was, I felt like he was doing something subversive in the same way that Andy had done um, with Andy. His thing had been creating sort of these Southern, so-called Southern yokel versions of Shakespeare. And what Gomer Pyle was doing, or Jim Neighbors was doing, he was doing sort of these um, Southern takes on opera. And so the one that Andy Griffith saw was him doing Pagliacci. And so I just thought that that juxtaposition of the high and the low, um, that seemed to be what connected these two. And so they're kind of taking these characters that seem like they're stereotypes and then fleshing them out so that they're so much more than that. Absolutely. 
you know, I wonder, I made a list of the shows that CBS had gotten rid of uh, as part of their their uh, purge, the rural purge that they did. Mm-hmm. I wonder if, given your research, if I name some of these shows, if you would have be able to offer your thoughts on them, uh, given, sure. you know, because I'd be very curious to uh, to hear what you think. So I'm, sure. I'm not sure what order I copied these off the list from, but let me start with Petticoat Junction. Petticoat Junction, um, actually, would you mind giving me the whole list? Because I think some of them are kind of blocked together sure. in terms of like why they were, I, and we'll see if we can sort them. Sure. And and here's here's the list, and they're not in order, so they're a little disorganized that way. I understand what you're trying to go for here. Uh, Petticoat okay. Junction, The Red Skeleton mm-hmm. Show, The Jackie Gleason Show, Green Acres, Mayberry RFD, Hee Haw, Lassie, Family Affair, Hogan's Heroes, which I'm not quite sure why that's on the list. Uh, the Jim Neighbors Hour at that point, the, and the Johnny Cash Show, the new Andy Griffith Show, and Ed Sullivan. These were all shows that were off a list of Wikipedia, so I don't know how reliable it is, uh, mm-hmm. that that were part of the rural purge from CBS. Well, I mean, I think you will agree with me that not all of those things fall into a rural category. I agree. Um, World War II, yeah, Nazi so- camp? Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> don't think so. Yeah, so uh, there are definitely some that don't fall in the rural category, but there was something happening there. Um, one, you can take all of the variety shows. Um, there was a new head of programming named Fred Silverman who came in in the late 60s. And what he was doing is looking at the data, which is not really something that had been done to any real extent before this. Um, he's looking at the data and he realizes only old people watch those shows. Um, and that they had been on, they're starting to lose favor, especially with the younger crowd, the boomer crowd. And so he cancels them because a lot of them had been on the air for more than 10 years. Um, so they're really aging poorly and he wants to get rid of them. Now, as far as, let's see, we've got Petticoat Junction, Mayberry RFD, think the Beverly Hillbillies. Green Acres. Um, Jim, Green Acres and maybe Jim Neighbors. All of those are going to be canceled at the same time because Fred Silverman had a real dislike of anything rural. He called these shows shit kicking shows. Um, so he, he kind of had a distaste for them. I even went back and read his uh, master's thesis, which he wrote about programming. And this was written in the fifties. Yeah. And he even then expressed a complete distaste for these kinds of shows. And he expressed disdain for people who watched them. Um, wow. So it, it went both ways. So he actually felt that um, he had a real, and this is kind of where the data fails him, because these are shows that are in the top 10, most of them. Yeah. Um, all of them are in the top 20 when they're canceled. And so he's kind of ignoring the data and he says, you know, I don't want the people who are watching this to be affecting our programming. And he said, I mean, he actually kind of classed them as sort of like a lower class of viewers. That's incredible. And so that's, yeah, I mean, it's it's really amazing how his personal prejudice kind of got in the way of, you know, making money. Now, granted, he's kind of right because a lot of the people who watch those shows as kids have grown up. These are the, the um, kind of the middle boomers. They're right. becoming adults. They want something a little more sophisticated. And in theory, something like Mary Tyler Moore or All in the Family, that's going to satisfy their taste a little bit more than Petticoat Junction. Yeah. But then on the other hand... Something like, and what's amazing, is that uh, you mentioned Hee Haw, yeah. which I think we can argue is probably the most cheesy, stereotypical <laughs> horn yes. tone that you can think of. Yes, we can. Well, what happens is there's a whole chapter in the book, but it's about the Smothers Brothers. 
and how CBS put, you know, Fred Silverman put the Smothers Brothers on the air and they started out being this wholesome sort of variety hour for the boomer teenagers. And then all of a sudden they turn subversive and they're attacking Nixon and they're attacking the government and they're talking about Vietnam and they end up getting fired despite the fact that they've been renewed for a fourth season. They get fired because they're, they keep insisting on putting all of this political content on the air. So Fred Silverman wanted relevance, but too much relevance was bad. And so what he does is he takes Mother's Brothers off the air and he replaces it one month later with Hee Haw. <laughs> so he hates Southern rural programming right up until the point when it benefits him. Or, yeah. it's, you know, it's no longer beneficial for him to do so, at which point he relies on that to bring viewers back in. And Hee Haw itself is an amazing survival story, you know, in the sense of it leaves CBS, what, three seasons in, I think, and then ends up in syndication mm -hmm. and runs for like 20 years. It's just crazy. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So, I mean, it's incredibly popular, but it is only it generally tends to be popular only in rural and southern areas. Yeah. Um, and so that's certainly something that he probably noticed, but it also saved his butt in 1969 when he had a big hole in his programming, um, this incredibly popular show that he took off the air because CBS chairman William Paley wanted to be the ambassador to Great Britain and was hoping to angle that from the president. And so he says, well, I'm going to kowtow to that. I'm going to fire the Smothers Brothers and we're going to put something a little more wholesome on. So he has like the stand in for American wholesomeness. Right. Exactly. Between him and between Silverman, it's so interesting to see these personal agendas, how impactful they are on the American people in the sense of what we watch every week, or at least at that time, what we watched every week, that he wants to be an ambassador. He doesn't like the Southern thing from the 50s onward. So his personal racism or prejudice, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and it's interesting that they can use those tools, personal tools to impact television and the and again, the audience the way they did. Well, and truly, I mean, what has changed? Why would it not be that way? You still have people who are at the heads of these studios who are able to make those decisions and sure. what they say goes, regardless of whatever the data bears out. I mean, I think that with data being what it is now, you're less able to do that. And you do have to justify your decisions a little bit more to your board or what have you. But that was less of an issue in the 60s than it is now. Right. Fair enough. You know, we look at that period and you think of rural purge and it's like, OK, it's now two words in the history books. Uh, of of what that was like, oh, CBS to wanted you know to appeal to a to a younger, hipper audience. Okay, great. That's that's what it is. At the time, in your research, what sort of response did that decision get from people? Well, there is. It's exactly what you would expect. It's a mixed bag from people who are kind of in that targeted boomer demographic. I don't think they necessarily cared. I think there was probably a little bit of nostalgia and thinking, you know, like, oh, that's a piece of my childhood that's disappearing. But for the most part, I think those same boomers are thinking, wow, now there's that because they weren't watching TV anymore. There was nothing on there that appealed to them. And so when you have something like All in the Family, um, in theory, that's going to bring them in because it's more sophisticated and more timely and relevant and kind of hitting on the, the, you know, the hot button issues of the day. But of course, the irony is with something like All in the Family, there's a lot of controversy that comes along with that. I mentioned in the book that All in the Family, you have this anti-hero, Archie Bunker, who in theory is supposed to represent all of these bygone social mores, these, these 
racisms and prejudices that are no longer considered socially acceptable, except he never changes and he's considered very lovable. And so for some people, he's not an anti-hero. He's just a plain old hero. And so there was a lot of concern that all in the family was actually propagating a set of negative values that would have been even more harmful than these Southern stereotypes that the rural comedies were projecting. But they're doing it under the guise of being um, sophisticated. Right. But it took – I mean Archie went through some transformation, but it took 10 seasons or something, right? (laughs) Nine seasons or whatever it was. And he didn't even transform that much, but it was a gradual transformation – but it's interesting that people – but it's kind of like what I say now in the like the political landscape, not to turn this into a political conversation, uh, mm-hmm. just the way that people feel like a lot of racism has come up in the last few years from people. And it's interesting yep. that the things you think are buried are not, you know, the things that are forgotten or moved beyond, they're not. And all in the family didn't, like you said, represent that. Well, that's true. I mean, I I think it's I mean, it's kind of scary in a way because you're talking about a show that came out in 1971 and we're 50 years on and we're kind of still in the same place where we have to talk about, you know, um, generational racism and like what's acceptable from our parents and grandparents versus the new generation. And I don't know that there's necessarily any difference in that. Um, And so it's somewhat disheartening. Um, I mean, I guess. Well, I mean, this is really the same as it was then. I mean, you think about some of the stories that you hear now in terms of race, and I think of All in the Family is a story about New York. If you think about the things that you hear now about, you know, what was it? Is it LaGuardia High School where they only admitted seven black students um, out of their new class? And that's been a big hubbub and this issue at NYU with their social work school and excluding black students from conversations. Unfortunately, I think the big takeaway from both is that well, people can be bigoted everywhere, not just in the South. Oh, absolutely. Which is it's kind of a horrible takeaway because you, it seems like, oh, well, this is a universal problem that we don't seem to be able to solve. Um, but, I mean, I think in some ways it does take the heat off the South, which as a Southerner, I find only somewhat comforting. <laughs> you know what? I, I understand why you'd feel a little bit comforted by that, but there's still something scary in the fact that people now seem to feel like it's okay to express any view they want, and it's kind of like – Really? <laughs> I was raised a little different than that, so I don't know. It's uh, keep your views to yourself. Thank you very much. Well, see, and and I I feel like that goes in cycles where people feel emboldened to have these opinions that are are um, I, I mean really distasteful to put it mildly. Yeah. But you know I do feel like that cycles, and you know it you know it's going to be hard to tell if it'll cycle this time because you never know how it's going to turn out until you know it's in the rearview mirror. But, um, you know, if history is any indication, then I'd like to think that eventually uh, common sense will prevail. Let's hope so. When you sat down and wrote the book, I know you told me what got you, you know, into it, what sparked the idea. So what was your journey, your personal journey? And you may have touched on this in the beginning uh, from your views of these things, uh, what you set out to do, what you discovered and what, how you came out the other end. Well, what I came out finding was that I, I I mean, I guess I expected, and I think everybody thinks this way, you kind of think of things as being in a bubble. And so I thought of these stereotypes, and that's really all I was focused on at first. But then what I came out with is also the sense of, it's almost like corporate America and how it changes based on how it's being attacked and just and sort of looking at this corporation, CBS, and how they adapt 
to some of the challenges that they face during the Red Scare and how that somehow comes out the other end as being a rural comedy boom. Because CBS was facing all of these charges of being communist sympathizers during the Red Scare. They, more than any other network, had been associated with a lot of people who were on various blacklists, who were on these lists of people, um, these booklets that were being published talking about people associated with communist activities. And they keep trying to change. And it just keeps going badly for them. They, they are going to try to... They're the ones who pick up the Westerns boom, which is great, except that then you have a bunch of parents complaining because of the violence. And then CBS executives have to go before Congress and say, well, you know, these, you know, my kid watched Bronco and now, you know, he's serving time in prison for second degree murder or something like that, you know, trying to draw this correlation. And then they try to do the quiz shows. Oh, yeah. And that ends in scandal. And, you know, so all of these things, they're trying to find something that's wholesome, something that's not controversial, and then it keeps coming back to bite them. And so rural comedy is their next step, and that turns out to be a huge boon for them. And so CBS almost overnight goes from being the communist broadcast system, which is what J. Edgar Hoover referred to it as, and it all of a sudden becomes the um, country broadcast system. So all of a sudden, their entire reputation has changed, and it hinges entirely on this rural comedy boom. And so they're able to completely change their their corporate reputation and salvage their profits on the backs of these roots. Right. And then they get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, when they're no longer serving their purpose. Right. That, that's amazing. Although maybe it's not that amazing, uh, no. really, when you think about it, though. So, yeah, uh, I mean, it's a truly American story of capitalism driving everything. Oh, yeah. If you think about it. Absolutely. You know, so did yeah. you did you come away with an? I think and again, I apologize if you kind of uh, mentioned this before, but did you come away with an affection for these shows or do they still seem like these sort of out of time acronyms, to, not acronyms, but, you know, these things that just don't belong uh, and just like oddities from the past rather than anything substantial. I don't, you know, I, I was looking at this. I think they're actually wonderful and I hope to show them to my own children. And I've tried to do that. They're just not interested at this point, but hopefully they will be. Yeah. But I, I find that there's something timeless about them because, you know, in hearing what Andy Griffith had to say about why he created these, you know, why he created his show, he said, even in the 60s, that show was a nostalgia for my childhood in the 30s. And so he is trying to, you know, even in the 60s, it was nostalgia for a different time. But now people look back on it now and they're thinking, oh, this is nostalgia for the 60s. But And so his nostalgia is building and it's going to different generations. And so there's something about thinking that there might have been a place once where everything was perfect. And there might have been a time when we all got along and our neighbors were our best friends. And, you know, families lived together and stuck up for each other. And nobody fought over politics at Thanksgiving. And, um, you know, I think there's something hopeful about that. There's something wistful and it's just kind of appealing to a universal nostalgia, regardless of what time period you're in. Absolutely. You know, you, you should, are you writing any other books? Cause just from talking to you, I feel like you should be writing more books. I am actually, um, contemplating doing a biography of Andy Griffith because I just think he's a fascinating human being. He is someone who represents sort of the Southern rube and yet he was incredibly well-educated he is someone who sort of is supposed to be sort of a, a, you know, this rural everyman, and yet he was actually not a very nice person. 
Um, he's someone who sort of represents a conservative, old-fashioned value system, and yet he supported Obama in the 2008 election, so he, and he actually was pretty liberal. And so I think he's just this bundle of contrasts. And I think also because he, I've, I've gone to Chapel Hill and looked at some of his papers, and there's video of him, and so he represents this early era of broadcasting when things were a little more rough. And then he also represents that transition to something that's more packaged and smooth. And so I'm really hoping to explore that a little bit more. Yeah, you know, it's funny if you, you know, when you look at that transition for Andy, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking now from just purely from what we see on TV. It's very interesting when you see the pilot of the Andy Griffith show as a part of the Danny Thomas show or make room for daddy or whatever it was mm-hmm. called at that point. Mm-hmm. Andy was a little more hickish and, it was a little rougher. And then when you got the Andy Griffith show itself, suddenly Andy was this sort of, he was the voice of reason now. He had changed. Well, see, that didn't happen until the second or third episode because his old buddy, Don Knotts, um, called him up and said that he needed a job because he had been fired um, or his show went off the air. I think he was on Steve Allen's show. And it turned out that, you know, they did some screen testing. And after the first episode, Andy realized, you know what, I'm not the funny one here. It's Don. He's the one who should be getting all the laughs. And so they literally changed midstream and they said, okay, I'm not the funny one anymore. I'm the straight man. And Barney Fife is going to be the humor. And Andy ended up becoming the straight man to the entire town of Mayberry. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you but that's, you're right. That's not how it was pitched on the Danny Thomas show at all. Like he definitely was fully in that rude persona. And that's something that Andy had been doing in his performing career up until then, with the exception of something like Face in the Crowd. Um, he had been fully playing that rude persona to its fullest. And then he realized Don Knotts was funnier than him. And so there was no point in trying to upstage him. Just let him have the floor. Unlike CBS, we would never purge our fans. So feel secure and subscribe. Tell your friends about us and give us a five-star review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.